Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like, you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. In London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. I'd love to take a quick moment to tell you about one of our partners who make this podcast possible. Softlayer, an IBM company. Softlayer operates a global cloud infrastructure platform built for internet scale and provides infrastructure as a service to customers ranging from web startups to global enterprises. Softlayer began as a bootstrapped startup, started in the founder's living room. Eight years later, they were acquired by IBM for $2.1 billion and through it all maintained the belief that startups are what makes the world go round. Softlayer's Catalyst program offers free credits for customized hosting across both virtual and bare metal machines, offering public and private clouds. Catalyst also makes it a point to provide a lot of support for early stage companies. They understand that no two startups are the same and refuse to take a cookie cutter approach to supporting Catalyst companies. Every startup gets personalized attention and feedback from a team of startup veterans and technical experts. For more info, check out softlayer.com catalyst. That's softlayer.com catalyst. Hey there and welcome back to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Crime Podcast. Today we have an enlightening conversation with the editor-at-large of TechCrunch, which is the biggest breaking news site about the hottest tech companies. Mike Butcher has been named one of the top 50 most influential Brits in technology by the Daily Telegraph. As well as being a longtime writer, broadcaster, and editor, Mike is also co-founder of TechHub, a project to merge a thriving community with office space for fast-moving startups. Mike earned his BA degree in history and English literature from Australian National University. Let's listen to this great conversation with Mike Butcher, interviewed by our London chapter director, Marion Gazdick. Mike, let's start with your background. Uh, where, where were you born? Where was I born? Um, I was born in uh, either Fulham or Hammersmith. I'm not quite sure which. Um, Queen Charlotte's Hospital doesn't exist anymore. And um, yeah, I lived in London when I was a little boy. So you're a Londoner? Sorry? You are a Londoner? I am, I am the only person in London from London now. All you people are all, I don't know where you guys are from. I'm kidding. Um, London's fantastically diverse now, of course. But, um, uh, but it, is, it is amazing how it's become a world city so quickly. And, you know, growing up in London very young, the only people around were just people pretty much from London most of the time where I was living. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I'm, but you know, like the rest of the world, we've all travelled. Um, I've travelled, and uh, and uh, you know, it's wonderful to see what London's become actually over the last few years. We'll talk about it uh, a bit later about the role of London within the ecosystem. And when you were growing up, at some point you discovered uh, you like to write. Well, um, I think I think I've discovered that I like to create. Um, my father is a research scientist uh, in malaria. Um, and I grew up uh, knowing the difference between Plasmodium fa- uh, falciparum was it? and Plasmodium vivax. I hope I got that right. And um, one's brain malaria that will kill you in 24 hours and the other one will do it more slowly. And um, I, uh, 
I, got up, I grew up wanting to create, kind of feel like creating things. And even though my dad tried desperately to get me into science, the first thing I did when I um, could get hold of any kind of ability to produce media, we said, Dad, I, 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 can I make a, they've got this thing called VHS, can I make a documentary about your malaria? And, uh, and he was like, all right then. So that was the first thing I did at high school, making a documentary about him and his malaria. And so it wasn't just about, writing is fantastic and, and journalism is a craft, but creating something I think is, is, is the most fantastic thing. And um, I think that's what attracts me to entrepreneurs in a way, is that they create something new in the world that didn't exist before. Um, in the same way that I liked, I was mad about music and still am, and you know, it was drumming rock bands and stuff back in the day. Um, but that creative process is extremely exciting. Um, it's so much more fun than anything you can ever think of, really. And so it's not about, to me, even these days, it's not just about writing, it's about creating things, whether it be media or events or something, something new in the world. Those, I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah, that's a big passion. So it's not just writing, it's also doing videos, uh, bringing people together for conferences. Well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, obviously. Um, the, one of the thing, things is, is that um, it's easy to lose sight of that, obviously. Um, and uh, sometimes I think the difference between an entrepreneur who was just sort of like painting by numbers, who goes, right, you know, okay, there's a gap. If we do that, that, and that, join those dots, we'll end up with the business. And then that, and that, that's totally fine, and I understand that. And there's a sort of an execution to that, uh, which can be, it has to be respected. Um, and, and then there's a different kind of an entrepreneur who has this sort of, basically, this sort of primordial passion that they want to really do something new. And it, it sort of eats them up inside. To, 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 and that, there, there's a, there are different kinds of, they're not, they're not just two different kinds, but often in a way, it, it does sort of flip between the two a little bit. It's, it's really interesting to watch, you know, as an observer, as I am. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you, you were doing these, these creative things, and when did you knew that this is something you want to do for a living? Um, well, I mean, a living, right? Journalism doesn't pay fabulously well. <laughs> but I remember the first job, uh, well, one of the first jobs I had in journalism was uh, on the Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle. And uh, I'm sure you, you've heard of it. And uh, it's a fantastic paper. It comes out every week in Hammersmith and Fulham. And uh, it was, uh, uh, I think I got paid 9,000 pounds a year, was, was my salary. And um, I couldn't afford to, at that point, I couldn't actually anymore afford to live in Hammersmith and Fulham or either. Um, so I, I had to like commute into town to basically cover my beat. And my beat was um, basically the Fulham Palace Road and up just, just before the Fulham Palace Road um, and uh, you know, where it meets the Thames and then right up to the roundabout, the big roundabout. That's sort of my beat roughly. And up on the Fulham Palace Road is um, obviously just that, that road there. Just to the left of it, if you're looking like north to south, is some very, very lovely houses just near um, Fulham Football Ground. And then just as you get a bit further north is the Peabody Estate. And there are only two stories that I used to end up filing for the Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle. 
blessed be its name, was the first was um, uh, drug death on the Peabody estate, heroin and, and gangs, and, uh, and the second story was um, £25,000 Rolex watch stolen off the Fulham Palace Road. So, <laughs> as you can imagine, it was, um, it was basically a real local newspaper stuff. And so, but what, I loved it, and it was fantastic, great fun, you know, going to police meetings, and we used to call it um, fire calls. Fire calls, getting in on a Monday, ring, there was no, there was no, only, only telephones then. You had to ring the, um, ring the police, what's going on, ring the, the firemen, ring the ambulance, fire calls. Do that every Monday morning, so you could file for the newspaper, see what happened. And, um, but police also had to have meetings, you had to go into the police station. And you sit there with the other, you know, had to sit there with the, the Hammersmith and Fulham Gazette, they were our deadly enemies. Um, and uh, so it was great fun, but what I really liked was writing about one thing. And, and then, you know, a few years passed and I've got into, I got into um, business journalism because I wanted to write about the media, fascinated by the media itself. Uh, I started writing about newspapers and magazines and stuff like that. And then of course the mid 90s came along and here comes the web. And uh, I'm very indebted to Keith Tier, who's now an entrepreneur and investor in Silicon Valley and actually quite well known and was actually ended up many years later the co-founder of TechCrunch with Michael Arrington. I'm uh, very indebted to Keith because he's the guy who wrote one of those funny little books that used to come out on magazines called How to Get on the Internet, you know, the ones that you peel off the magazine. Yeah. And, um, and then that was like, how to get on the internet? Right, I'm getting into this. And, and that was all that. Uh, and then getting into all of that was what inspired me to get into writing about technology and the web and, and then into this sort of, you know, crazy mad world of startups eventually. Uh, yeah, but that was in the 90s when the music was better. Yeah. <laughs> it was different, definitely. Did you know immediately when you saw the internet that this is something special, this is something amazing? Well, it was full of filth, for starters. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, well, it's been said very often, obviously, the democratizing effect of the internet. But I've seen that for myself, not just uh, of the fact that, you know, in 1995 you could dial up and suddenly you could be talking to someone from some totally crazy people from San Francisco or New York or, or wherever, who else was connecting and didn't know, honestly, who, know who these people were. Uh, but exchanging ideas and, you know, having discussions uh, on uh, the early social media that was known as bulletin boards. Um, but, you know, having been in the uh, Arab world myself um, over the last few years and witnessed uh, how entrepreneurs have uh, basically used, you know, springboarded off the, what happened in the Arab Spring um, into creating new, new stuff. I mean, it is fantastic, isn't it? If you think about it, if you stop to think about it, it's absolutely astounding. And, and to, think that, to think of a world without the internet would, would be quite literally unthinkable now. And um, without those democratizing effects and without the access um, and that, that wonderful opportunity for you know, a kid in Cairo to come up with something and just spin it out and wow, get picked up by 500 startups or something like that. That's super, super cool. Um, so, um, and it's just, I mean, frankly, I mean, it's, it, it's depressing to think what would happen 
you know, where those people, what those people did years and years ago. Um, uh, it's like, uh, is it the Tennyson poem, an ode in a, in a, in a graveyard about um, thinking about what happened, who, those people who came before us many, many, for many years, hundreds of years, never had opportunities like that. And so um, uh, that's a very long-winded answer, but um, yeah, I, it's, it's just fantastic. So, yeah, absolutely. Fast-forwarding. Uh... I don't think we should fast-forward. I want to tell you. Um, I want to tell you something else. Um, one of the cool things about my dad, which I think you guys should know about, is he was one of the first uh, guys to do. His name's Dr. Jeffrey Butcher, and he's one of the uh, earliest malaria research scientists in in the uh, in the world, really, since the 60s, since the 60s, 70s, and he's super cool because. Part of the reason he's super cool is, um, is uh, he, uh, if you've got a dad or a, a mum or uh, somebody who's like a father or mother figure who inspires you, then you should grab hold of that. You should use that as your energy. And that's where my, what my father has done for me. And one of the coolest things that ever happened to me was um, he uh, got a job at a place called Porton Down which is um, it basically, it's like the, the UK's Area 51. It's where they keep all the aliens. And, um, but they had a, a, a research pl program there on malaria. So, but on the weekends, he would have to go and check if his experiment was working or not. So I'd get in the car and uh, you'd, uh, you'd have to go through soldier, you know, a soldier sort of thing, because it's all secure, surrounded by, uh, you know, firing ranges for, for tanks and stuff. And uh, you'd, we'd have to drive like a, basically a mile or so into the middle of Salisbury Plain. And in the middle of Salisbury Plain is this big hulking building, which should really be in a movie somewhere. And uh, you can see it, I think you can see it on Google Maps, unless they've blotted it out. And um, he'd go in and check his experiment was working on the weekend. And I'd play football up against the wall, because um, I was only a kid. And, uh, and while, I was watch well, while I was there, uh, basically, you know, the SAS would be jumping out of Hercules bombers and there'd be firing ranges going on, God knows what else. And, um, and he came up, so, see anything interesting? And I said, uh, Dad, there's, there's like World War III going on over there. He said, it's all right, it's just the SAS. Um, <laughs> but he was so cool and so inspiring to me. That's why I got into technology, really, is because it doesn't really matter that I didn't want to become a scientist. He gave me the interest in people and the world and wanting to change the world for the better that he had because he is obsessed with making children's lives better because children are the most people, people most affected by malaria. Um, so so the, the area which makes you tick. Exactly. So that's what makes me tick. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I'll tell you. That's a very cool story. Yeah. Uh, Going, going forward to TechCrunch, how did you end up being at TechCrunch? Well, so, um, uh, well, so let's, let's cast our minds back. So it's the mid-90s. The uh, web comes along. Uh, a chap called Tim Berners-Lee uh, comes up with a lovely little web browser. Um, it's all going tickety-boo. Up until then, it had all been Veronica and Archie and strange little apps connecting to the internet and strange little bulletin boards and stuff like that. But the web met suddenly, the web browser suddenly made sense of the internet. 
And, um, and I'd been writing about the media business. Uh, and uh, I rang up a, a guy who was working on a magazine called New Media Age and said, have you got any jobs going? And so he turned out he did. And um, luckily, I was much more at the geeky end of journalism. So I would literally go into newsrooms and um, reconfigure the Mac uh, setup and then get told off, even though it was better, of course. And, um, and this was perfect job for me because I only wanted to get involved in the internet business and write about the internet, stuff, uh, internet uh, companies. And, um, and that was about 1996. And now uh, we were run, trying to run a, an internet magazine on, on, mo, on a building, in a building which had four modems. And all, each modem was only a 56K modem. So four modems, the entire building was trying to connect to the internet. And we were trying to run, an, we were the only internet magazine in the building. Uh, this company called Centaur Publishing, which frankly didn't know what the heck they were doing. And, uh, and we basically had to control the rest of the magazines to get off the internet so we could do our job. So um, it was super fun and great, great, you know, great excitement. And eventually became the editor uh, in the late 90s and, um, and took it from a, what was effectively a newsletter into a magazine. And, uh, and that really, so I've seen a couple of booms, as it were, um, prior to this one, shall we say. Um, and uh, yeah, similar things happened. You know, there was the case of the, uh, the, the company that decided to create a boardroom out of inflatable chairs. And then there was a startup that put grass in their grass down, you know, real grass in their office just to try and outdo Google and uh, all sorts of strange stuff like that. Do you remember the first UK based company you wrote about? Oh gosh, that's impossible to say. I couldn't possibly say that. Something cool which you really remember, which excited you back back then, and then they became big. Oh, it was more. Um, it was. Um, I mean, I think FreeServe, of course, really changed the game because they they basically managed to figure out how to get people online all day and all night for a flat rate. The first flat rate dial-up internet access. I mean, it sounds completely anachronistic now, but that's what they did. FreeServe was the first one that did that. And um, whereas the, the whole of America had local calls and you could be online all day for 50 cents, it didn't exist in the UK. You, you know, every time you went online on a dial-up line, you would be paying by the minute. We just didn't have the same infrastructure or the same culture. So FreeServe cha changed the game absolutely on that. Um, and. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean when they IPO'd, they had um, a million users, and the IPO valuation was based on the fact that uh, for every person, they were worth a thousand pounds. That was in the IPO document, so therefore they were worth, you know, etc. You know, etc. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> that's how people were valued then. People would literally do startups based on the fact that they had. 25,000 pages of flat HTML. It wasn't an app. It was just a website, right? So that's the, that was the environment. And it was really a media-driven boom. The, media, the, driven, the boom was media-driven. You know, I remember like, people talking about 25 pounds you know, per banner advert. 25 pounds. It's absolutely insane, isn't it? Because it was such a new medium, and in, in fact, because I was on New Media Age, you know, that's basically what about, what about advertising agencies and web agencies and people like that. Um, 
because it was considered a new medium rather than a platform in the way that we think of it now. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had Brent Hoberman here, the founder of LastMinute.com, in April, and he said, uh, you know, the valuation of, of the company was really skyrocketing, and then the, it, it plummeted to by it, it decreased by ninety five percent. Yeah, well, I, I remember being um, on the top of Soho House with Brent having drinks just the week before the IPO. And um, yeah, that was super fun, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> but um, and I, I don't think that they, I don't, absolutely, I don't think that they realised what would happen afterwards. It was really a brand new, brand new world. Also, and he still managed to, uh, he stayed for a few more years, and he still managed to sell, sell it for over a billion. Yeah, I mean, no, Brent is an amazing entrepreneur. Um, and, but Brent and Martha together did it, uh, Martha Lane Fox. Um, I mean, they were kind of pretty rebellious in a way. I mean, um, now he's a scion of, of, of government and he rubs shoulders with princes and PMs and what have you. But, I mean, Brent and Martha used to turn up at award ceremonies in jeans and T-shirts. And they were, they were proper, like, uh, proper rebels, actually. Just like you, right? Yeah. Well, I, I just do this because I don't know, I have any other clothes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so let's go back to you. Now you started writing, and then at some point you decided to do something else as well. Uh, you built something else. So well, what was the first thing you built? Well, I mean, um, I mean, I'm a media guy, and I love media, and I love journalism. Um, but I do sometimes wonder. I think, like many of the entrepreneurs in the room, you see something and you think, "I want to change that," don't you? And one of the things that I saw in um, around about 2008, 2009, was the fact that, um, especially around here, uh, the cluster of startups was building, but most of the meetups were happening in pubs and, uh, you know, in upper level pub rooms and, you know, tiny little places all over the place. And uh, nobody had a place to, like, hang out all the time. And there was this co-working movement happening over in the States, um, which was starting to, to fire up. And I'd just been to Dublin, and Dublin um, at that time had a thing called the Digital Hub, which was basically government-backed. Um, but it was a place where you could go and get a kind of a, a desk, uh, plug in, get some Wi-Fi, get some, grab some coffee, boom, off you go. And, that, and I thought, why doesn't somebody do this in London? This makes, doesn't make any sense why we're not doing this. And of course, you know, the property values are you know, different and all the rest of it. But I thought there must be some way of figuring this out. And then I went to, um, I just happened to go, I was just writing about the idea that somebody should do it, not thinking that I would do it at all, frankly. Um, and, and then I just happened to have a lunch with an old friend of mine, Elizabeth Varley, um, who had been one of the early cohorts, as it were, in London, of the sort of internet boom. And um, we had lunch, chatted about uh, stuff, as you do. And um, she told me that she was looking to do a kind of a co-working space, but just sort of a general for one for small businesses. Um, and I said, hold on a minute, why don't you do one in tech? Because I think there really needs to be one in tech. I mean, if you want to do it, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, we should do it together. And she was like, uh, yeah, okay, hold on a minute. So that was a, that great sort of- It was easy. Great sort of moment, you know, when you meet someone, you think, wow, we can actually do this together. Super fun. And, um, and so off we went. And, um, uh, but like all entrepreneurs, you've kind of got to fake it till you make it, don't you? So we wanted to get the techhub.com domain name. So I found the guy in Texas uh, who owned techhub.com and uh, emailed him a very polite email saying, um, 
Hello, uh, my name is Mike Butcher. I run a, a computer repair company in southwest London. Um, uh, could, I'd like to buy Tech Hub. Uh, would £500 be okay? And he said, okay, boy, no problem. Just wire over the money. And uh, there we go, techhub.com. Uh, I got that. And, and then we realized we weren't really sure if people wanted it. So we had to create sort of a minimum viable product for the idea. So we created this sort of uh, viral campaign, we hoped it would be viral, of people, we said, if you make a video of Tech Hub, of why you want a Tech Hub to actually exist and why you want to like, have a place where all the geeks hang out and all the entrepreneurs and the startups, why don't you make a video of about a minute and just telling us why and we'll pick one and then you can become a free member, we'll, we'll give you a membership for a year or something, free membership for a year. And so we did that. And we ended up with um, about sort of 25, 30, 40, 50, I can't remember how many, it's quite a lot actually. And uh, including the founder of Postmates, Bastian Lerman, who's now in San Francisco, and his company is now worth a billion. He was there hacking away, one of our early members. And, um, and some VCs did it as well. And we, then we used that and we took that to sponsors and partners and people like uh, Google, for instance, who became an early sponsor, Pearson. Um, who became an early sponsor. What did the first uh, And they said, OK, so people do want it. So now we, we've proved that you want it, let's talk. So that really, really helped. A quick break from Mike Butcher for some recent startup headlines. Amazon has launched Prime Now restaurant deliveries in Seattle. It includes menus, in-app ordering, and free one-hour delivery at launch. Users can also track orders in real time. Apple is looking to hire AI experts, according to Reuters. 86 job postings across multiple sites focus on machine learning and plans to improve Siri and more. Ride-sharing service BlahBlahCar is raising a $160 million D round led by Insight Partners at $1.6 billion valuation, according to TechCrunch. The French company is now in 17 countries, including the UK and Russia. It's raised $270 million to date. Let's get back to the interview. Was it the first co-working space in London? Um, it was... It was the first co-working space dedicated to tech startups. Uh, around the same time, there's the Trampery kind of appeared, where the Trampery was originally a company that, uh, that then basically had a whole bunch of desks that they started renting out. Moo.com had a whole bunch of desks that they sort of rented out. So nobody was doing it totally formally. The Tech Hub started as the formal, actual co-working space for startups. Yeah. So it wasn't hard for you to get members uh, because you, you were involved? No, actually it was impossible. Nobody, it was terrible. Uh, we'd was spent, it? Um, yeah, a few months actually empty um, because we, we were sort of like so early with the idea. People did, didn't really get it. And then one of the early times, we're, we were like standing there with 5,000 square feet and about five people in it. And um, we were going, oh God, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay the rent? And, um, but we had lots of media interest. Uh, this, uh, a, uh, TV crew from uh, Russia today turned up and said, uh, oh, we have heard about Silicon Roundabout. Um, we want to see, where is the Silicon Roundabout? Is it here? Is this is it? Uh, oh, there's a roundabout. Um, and we're like, yeah, this is it. And we thought, great, we're going to have all these Russians members. Um, so we said, uh, yeah, hey, look, the poor cameraman had to make our empty space look like it was full with about five people sitting around going like their laptops. And, um, and, uh, and it's, there's, we've got it on, a, a, on YouTube still with me going, yeah, so Silicon Roundabout, and then I just go, because I get dubbed into Russian. 
super fun. And, and then we looked up how many uh, viewers t um, Russia Today had, and it was 125 million or something ridiculous. And we were like, oh, wow. great. And we sort of braced ourselves. <laughs> Nothing happened. Um, but uh, that was 2011. And then really, so we launched in July 2011. Um, but something, something, someone put something in the water or something. Because in January 2012, bang, it just really, really took off. And um, do you and know why? It's, it's, it's was well, it like a report on TV or uh, people? I think it was, it was sort of building around that time. Yeah. All of the technology, the real sort of dedicated engineers and the technologists and the geeks and the the uh, long-time entrepreneurs that I'd known for some quite some time since the 90s and since the you know the early 2000s, who basically kept going and kept on doing startups, were now suddenly joined by a whole wave of new people. Um, and something I don't know. All these sudden that, that that particular era of college kids or university people coming straight out and going right, let's go. Um, and the you know the confluence of three G, the confluence of broadband, basically really let the touch paper on things. And also more money came into the market, and there were more exits. Last FM exited around that time, um, and had created a sort of a, a real heroes. And I think that's one of the things about entrepreneurs is is having these heroes or people that you think, if they can do it, so can I, right? And, and that's, that, that's what sort of flicked the switch, I think, on those things. Yeah, and on the space, you said five months without uh, too many members. How yeah, did you survive financially? Were you bootstrapping? Uh, well, obviously, sold my body on the street, <laughs> which didn't really go very far. Um, and no, but we, um, we did, um, we, uh, we, 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 we muddled through somehow, and we, we, did, we did okay, and we had enough members, and we put on loads of events. And I think that's one of the things about Tech Hub today, actually, Elizabeth, and, and now I'm effectively an advisor now, um, Elizabeth and her team now have built a great community, which is, they, which is sort of their special source, really, their, their ability to do events and introduce people to VCs and what have you. And you know, now they're, you know, they've got three locations in London, and they keep... They keep picking Bs. They've got Boston, Bangalore, Bucharest. I'm waiting for the next B. Um, but there's one in Latvia as well. There's one in Riga. There's, um, and they've got a couple more under their... Under their no, just did one in Madrid as well. So, they, I mean, that's the interesting thing because they're creating sort of a network which is very useful for London and for Londoners and for, and for them as well, for the, these outlying or, or other countries to basically come into London as well, sort of use... London as a, a launch pad. Uh -huh. yeah. So you, as being advisor of, of, uh, of TechHub, uh, for a while it was mostly central working TechHub. Now we have uh, spaces like this, WeWork. What do you think about these guys? I think, well, I think you, they're part of a movement that has happened over the last few years, which is quite simply solving the property problem for entrepreneurs. You don't know if your company is going to be around in three months. You need office space, you know, the blah, blah, blah. Very, very simple. Um, and and it's, it's a real sort of policy issue, I think, for, for the government. And I mean, you said that I advised the PM and the mayor. Well, I mean, they didn't really listen, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I actually managed to end up sitting in front of David Cameron um, about three years ago. Well, sorry, just before, uh, just before the Olympics. And I said, well, basically, this is what I said. I said, you should turn the Olympic Village into a massive uh, technology park. You should make all the uh, Olympic athlete accommodation, accommodation for engineers, for scientists, for geeks, 
for roboticists, you name it. That's what you should do. Simple. We're waiting. We're still waiting. But um, hopefully some of it will happen. There's a couple of good projects in there, like some of the Here East guys are really trying to do their best. Obviously yes. that park there. But um, uh, yeah, I, there is a, you know, the, the WeWork guys and Tech Hub and all these other people are solving a problem for entrepreneurs, uh, which is community, offices, uh, events. Um, and it, you know, it's amazing actually how much is happening in London, because I go to other cities in Europe um, and there's maybe a few, a couple of these kinds of things, but it seems to have really taken off in London. So you say it's a movement. Uh, how hard is it for companies like this to scale? Uh, we know WeWork has raised uh, 350 million uh, recently and uh, they're growing very fast. Uh, is it complicated to convince investors you can really spend this money way, uh, wisely? Well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that. You should ask the WeWork guys. But the, uh, someone as, a, as an observer, um, obviously they've raised a lot of money, so that buys you a lot of leases, right? Um, but then the, the other issue is, uh, is, it's, is, it, is it, how do you create a platform, a technology platform? Is there a technology play? Um, and you have to work out whether or not there is, there is a technology play there or not. Um, one of the things I think that is really, um, is it slightly frustrating about Europe is that we often don't create platforms. They create, bu create businesses, but not platforms. And it's partly to do with the ambition or the access to capital of investors, uh, because investors, especially on this side of the pond, often say, you know, what are the figures looking like in six months? Or what are the revenue figures, predictions for 18 months? And um, that's a different proposition from value investors who tend to say, uh, can you build me a structural monopoly in the next five years? Right? And that is a different proposition. And it's usually because, A, you've got access to a very large market, the US, so, and Europe is more fragmented. And uh, B, the, um, uh, the aspirations of some VCs. There are a few handful of VCs in Europe who do have that aspiration and, quite, and, and um, can go, yeah, we would kind of basically want to go, we use this as a platform, uh, but we want to kind of scale up and go global from here. Um, uh, and, you know, the indexes, the Axels, the Boulderton's, more recently, uh, the uh, uh, just recently, uh, um, uh, what's Klaus Hummels' fund? Lake Star just came out, 350 million. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the DN Capitals and the, and the you know, the Dawns and the, and the passion capitals at the micro level VC, very interested in creating global platforms, right? And those are the ones, those the, the VCs like that are really interested in that sort of thing. The, um, there are very many uh, continental European VCs who tend to think much more, uh, just do it in Germany or you know, France I see. or whatever. If you so, some guys from Index in the audience and some other, other VCs as well, some food oriented uh, uh, companies as well, uh, you, now, being an entrepreneur and uh, working for, uh, so you, you're advising TechUp, and you also started this other company called Europas. Yeah. Is the company or is it just an event once a year, and that's how you wanna, you it's wanna keep it? It's a tiny little company, it? but basically it's, it's a big party. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, the idea really was that um, I, people weren't celebrating startups, and so there were lots of um, kind of conferences and things but no celebration, and that's what I figured that we weren't really doing enough of. Um, so we'd started the Europas Awards, we did it in a bar, 
about six years ago in a South London bar, and about uh, 100 people turned up, and um, we got people to vote for the companies they thought were the best and that kind of thing. And, um, and it's fantastic. But, but the, the, the thing that's great about it is that it's completely, genuinely editorially independent. So it's not, it's re genuinely the votes of the community who get to decide who we think is great. And that's actually a great signal to the media and to investors and to the community about who's really knocking it out of the park. Who's going to be, who's cool right now? Who's going to be cool next year? Uh, who's doing great work? Who's a great entrepreneur? These kinds of things. Who's great investors? So that was much more about celebration. And um, last year we um, turned it into a one-day conference, uh, which is much more collaborative and it's designed to be much more like smaller groups rather than being these big massive conferences where you go to, um, uh, uh, which are, are great by the way, but um, uh, you know have a, there's a lot of people, whereas. We keep it to about under a thousand, and quite a lot of people are invi is inv invited basically to come. So it's much more of a community event, I think. So um, I just wanted to get back to those early days of those early good conversations, like we're having, you know, like we, we're able to have at a smaller events like this um, to talk about, like, how do you do things, how do you get things done, that kind of thing. I love the idea to celebrate startups. It's a very good condition. Yeah, and. Um, and now we're getting great media coverage. You know the you know the London newspapers and the, the CNBCs and the Bloomberg's come along and stuff like that. So yeah. you want to keep it in London, or you want to do do it like TechCrunch disrupt uh, to keep moving it from city to city? Well, TechCrunch disrupt uh, did um, TechCrunch disrupt in Europe in Berlin a couple of years ago, and then in London last year, and in London it'll be in London December the seventh and eighth. Uh, disrupt disrupt Europe in London uh, this year. Again, um, I've done the Europas in London mostly. I did it in Berlin once. Okay. Um, generally speaking, I'm going to keep it in London because it's a good, hu great hub for, for everybody to come into. And yeah. the frequency is going to stay once per year? Uh, yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really in the conference game uh, as, a, as a professional. I'm, I'm a journalist. But, uh, You're going to have a party and celebrate startups. Well, just, yeah. But, it, but also, I think it's... I, I mean, basically, the Europas is my black book. So I just go, right, you, 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 come, right? And so, um, and actually ends up being a good, good event. Uh -huh. And how do you see the Europas, for example, uh, either co collaborating or competing with others like Founders Forum and the other? It's, it's, it's not, not, it's not. Just something else for somebody else? No, it's, it's uh, I think it's much more early stage. So uh, Founders Forum is aimed at, is very invitation only and aimed at, Generally, uh, entrepreneurs who've exited, uh, possibly even sometimes multiple times. So, as you can imagine, it's quite a rarefied atmosphere. And uh, uh, whereas Europas is generally open to what anyone early stage, but we try to curate, curate it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about startups now because they have, uh, I'm, I'm sure we have plenty of startups here who like to learn about uh, your experience. Uh, how many? startups you have been uh, hearing about and how do you select uh, the startups you write about because uh, these people, they, they're early stage, they want to learn about uh, what is it that makes uh, a journalist be interested? Well, um, the, the thing you've got to do is you've got to think about it as um, in terms of news, not in terms of PR, because uh, PR people, God love them, will think in terms of how to shape your story, whereas journalists are interested in what's going on in the news. Um, I, a couple of months ago, I wrote a blog post on my personal blog 
which I rarely update these days because I'm kind of busy on TechCrunch, but um, it's called uh, mbytes.com and the article is called The Press Release is Dead. And I wrote it because too many entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs, are trying to kind of press release themselves like they're a big corporate. And it doesn't really work, it doesn't come across. And what they're kind of forgetting is that they've got to get across what their product does, uh, how it operates in the market, and um, you know, where they sit. And you've got to remember, you've got a very short amount of time to attract the attention of a journalist before they move on to something else and decide that this isn't interesting enough. And so I just basically wrote down the questions that we'd just ask you anyway. I just I, I effectively open sourced it for you um, so that you can basically go, Right, these are the kinds of things that journalists are generally going to be interested in. Let's shape our story around that, that might work in that way. Now, I wrote it in a particular way. It sounds a bit grouchy. Uh, unfortunately, I apologise in advance if you read it. It sounds like, I sound like an absolute beep. It is valuable advice. It's really, um, it's really interesting. <laughs> but I was writing it a little bit out of frustration, and I thought, what the hell? I'll be passionate about this. And, um, and it just it contains like simple questions. Like... Simp simply, one of the things, simple things, is like, what's going on in the news right now? So, wearables, for instance, that's a big, interesting, uh, hot topic right now. Now, uh, do you, are you, if you've got a wearable device, are you going to pitch it in a different way? No, because that's a good, good subject. So, uh, go for that, and also trying to go around something that's happening in the news that might be s sort of aligned with you. You know, so for, so when Apple obviously came out with the watch. Everyone must went right because that's what journalists are interested. They're, you know, they're a bit, we're a bit of a pack mentality. Right, this is coming out. What else is out in the market? I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a thing called the Vector Watch, which is a startup uh, originally out of Romania. It's actually quite nice. They're out of Romania, and they're like, boom, right, we're going to get in on the side of that news. And um, obviously, you don't want to launch on the same day as the Apple Watch. Obviously, that'd be insane. Um, uh, I mean, when Steve Jobs died. There was no, no startups got launched. That's what all we wrote about for about a month, because uh, you know everyone was so obsessed with with what had happened uh, to Apple over the last you know 30, 20, 30 years, and that's basically all the all the tech press just wrote constantly about that for virtually a month. So it was very, very hard to actually launch anything. So um, you know, don't launch around then. But you've got uh, you've got to sort of pick your timing and. Um, and often it's about forming relationships with journalists, not in the <coughs> biblical sense, excuse me, but in the sense of um, trying to get to know what they like to write about, you know, who they are. You know, you don't pitch a wireless startup to a broadband magazine, I don't know. You, don't, you just don't do those. You go after the journalists and the titles that fit who you're working, what you're working on. Um, just very simple things, but often things that aren't sort of spelt out, I think, enough. So, Mike, yeah. how do you personally choose what startups do you write about? Do you, do you go by themes or it's just something you really like, you're interested in, and then you start to write about it? I really, really love very simple uh, um, implementations of big ideas um, that just are just simple and just mellifluous and beautiful and work just in a magical way, so in the sense that you go, oh my god, that's amazing, you know, that kind of thing. That's fantastic. 
I haven't written about it yet, but I came across a startup in Berlin the other day, and the, the demonstration was just like, you were like, really? Oh, that's fantastic. And they're, they're not ready to come out of, um, out of uh, stealth mode yet, but that's the sort of thing, that's super fun. But the other thing is, often startups do incredibly complex things. So you, you're trying to kind of, you know, we're trying to be the enterprise SaaS B2B uh, platform for uh, accounting, uh, verified uh, certifications of the etc 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 and it goes on forever right and um, and I get and, and then they try and oversimplify it and say we're trying to change the world for checks or something like that and you go that doesn't work either uh, <laughs> uh, or we're trying to make accountants lives beautiful or something it's kind of weird uh, yeah right okay um, and there are many many press releases with um, the world's greatest, the world's best, etc. Uh -huh. um, you know, and they're all in the bin because they they don't say anything. Um, so, it, admittedly, it's quite a hard job to kind of tell your story, um, but uh, especially if it's more of a complex product. Um, so, uh, but I, I mean, I do like those. But but, but often the ni the nice thing that even sort of complex products are actually kind of coming in here and really disrupting something quite significantly. Yeah. And that's and, and you know that's why in a way TechCrunch called created a conference called Disrupt because we like that we like that disruption. We are that's what we're all about and that's what we like to cover. Yeah. So anybody who does that, you know, becomes somebody that we take notice of. You know? mm -hmm. For our audience, we are uh, having this tool called slido.com. Uh, you can all uh, just open the page. There's no, no app needed. Just open it, use the, the hashtag startupgrind. On Twitter, the same, uh, startupgrind. Uh, that's the hashtag we're using for tonight. Uh, there's a question here, which is, what startups are most exciting in your opinion? Which startups are most exciting? Uh, right now, in your opinion. Um... I mean, we've got a number in London. I mean, fintech is obviously a natural home for London. Uh, so startups like TransferWise and Go Cardless, uh, oh. etc., have, um, you know, that they're coming from a heritage in London, uh, which we have very deeply here, and they've seen the problems that the banks have with either with forex or with whatever, and um, and really sort of attacked that. Um, so fintech is a big one. Um, London seems to be very good at sort of sectioning off deep verticals. Um, and it's partly because effectively it's no longer a city. It's kind of a mega city now. Yeah. Um, and we have in London now contained within the city both Hollywood, Madison Avenue, uh, Silicon Valley, etc. We have deep verticals in the city now because it's so big and so diverse and so culturally and um, talent rich. Um, so people are just sectioning off. So FinTech is a big one, you know, fashion tech uh, uh, now is a big one coming out of London as well. Um, you know, Thread just raised eight million uh, for its, its startup. Um, and that couldn't really have come, Thread, Thread probably could not have come from Silicon Valley. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? You think? Yes, because they, have you seen Silicon Valley clothes? Appalling. Just do not know how to dress. I can say that as a man who wears the same thing all the time. But um, uh, 
uh, there's lots of cultural startups that don't really are unlikely ever to come from Silicon Valley. There is no culture there. What that's partly because, and that, when I say culture, um, I don't. I mean, there is culture, of course there is, but it's it's not the same thousand-year history of art history and sculpture and painting and uh, craftsmanship that we've got in Europe. Um, in fact, I'm wearing. God, I sound like an advert, don't I? But I mean. I mean, I am actually, this is a genuine story. So a young couple, isn't it that they're in love? Isn't that nice? They, they, they got together and they wanted to do a startup together. And there are, um, she's Israeli and he's Italian. It's called Quattrocento. And they, um, he's from the glasses industry. And the glasses industry in Italy is very old. Italian sunglasses, right? I mean, you know, everyone has heard of Italian sunglasses. And... Um, and, uh, and there's a great, uh, there's a lot of uh, history in milling and, and glass making and, and, and spectacles and what have you, and lots of craftsmanship there. But um, obviously they are uh, having problems because the global market is for glasses is being disrupted by the internet and stuff like that. So they've decided to do a full stack. We'll not only design, so we don't have to license any, license any designs from anyone, we'll design the glasses and we'll make them and we'll ship them and we'll do all the e-commerce. So sort of Apple model, full stack. And actually they're doing quite well, they've raised money. And that sort of company couldn't have come from Silicon Valley because it doesn't have that cultural heritage in the same way that Italy has for, for many years. Uh, just outside of Milan, there's all these glasses factories there. So that, that's what I'm saying. We can play to our strengths in a different way. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, just to understand your point of view better, uh, how many startups do pitch to you a day, a month? How many pitches do you hear? Um, well, I mean, it's got a lot more complicated. <laughs> Everybody's on every uh, every platform, so I'm now on. So obviously, I get a lot of email. Mike at TechCrunch.com, by the way, if you want to pitch. Um, um, uh, um, and so I get a lot of email, hundreds of emails. I used to say I get 500 emails a day, but I don't know. It's, it's about three or 400. Um, and a day. What? A day. A day, yeah. 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 Um, but now the, you guys are all on everything else. So now I get pictures. So I always, always got pictures on Skype. And now you get, um, you know, WeChat, Line, Facebook, Business. Messenger, Twitter. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter pitches, at Mike Butcher. We just launched. Please look at our website. Please <laughs> check out our app. That is their pitch. What's a cool, what's like, a, what's a cool tweet you, you, would, you would look at? Well, I, I wrote this, this piece, the press release is dead. What is a cool tweet that I would look at? That's an interesting question. Um, Mike Butcher, bugger off. Um, <laughs> you would look at that. I don't know. I look at all of them, I don't get, I don't, you know. Um, <laughs> there's, actually a, there's actually a fake Twitter account, which is a fake um, Mike Butcher's leather jacket. Um, some, somebody out there has decided to do a fake Twitter account for my leather jacket. It says, can't wait for the dry cleaners on Saturday. <laughs> things like this. <laughs> this is really fun. Funny, yeah. um, I said when I wrote this piece, the press release is dead, was... I've actually tried to, even though it sounds, I apologize in advance, it sounds super grumpy. I wrote it when I was very grumpy. And sometimes I get a bit grumpy. But um, uh, it, 
there's a lot of information in there which is basically how journalists behave and operate and the things they have to deal with all the time. And, and one of the things I said, one of the, I've added, started adding notes, so I'm sort of gradually updating it. It's going to become a Wikipedia of how to pitch. Um, and one of the notes is how to t pitch on Twitter. And the, the answer is don't, basically. Don't pitch on Twitter, but okay, send a pitch, you know, a, something that has some substance, uh, not too much. Don't tell me the entire life story, unless it's super interesting. But um, uh, some substance on email or, you know, whatever. Um, and then you can tweet the journalist and say, hey, I just sent you a, uh, a pitch. Take a look. It's, you know, it should be in your inbox right about now. Right? And you might go, OK, fine. And then you can sort of go, right, OK, I get it. But when they go, hey, we just launched. Here's the website. And you go, basically, I have to do that thing where I'm in the middle of something. And I go, now, is it worth my while dropping everything now and going looking at that? Or can I just continue what I'm supposed to be doing, like working? Uh, should I really do that? I have to make that decision, yeah. right? And that's a split-second decision. And, and if it's somebody that I know who is a serial entrepreneur or a VC or a contact of mine, then I'm probably going to look at it. But if I'm someone I don't know at all, then you're just going to make that decision of, well, have I got five, you know, 10 minutes to kill, which is usually never, or am I going to carry on with what I'm doing? That's the, that's the issue, right? Or it's like, we just sent you a pitch, it's in your inbox, and you go, and then you'll remember, okay, that's the person who pitched me on Twitter. Yeah. On this moment, so you get up in the morning, you open your laptop, and there's a bunch of emails in your inbox. Uh, what grabs your attention? How do you decide which ones to click on? Or you go one by one? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is that what people don't understand is that journalists are walking on stories all the time. So they're not necessarily going through their inbox in a fine, with a fine-tooth comb. I'm writing a story right now which has got nothing to do with email or whatever, any email that's sent to me. So, um, so, so your inbox is like, you know, incoming, but, and, but there are things going on all the time out there in the real world to do with Facebook or Twitter's IPO, uh, Twitter's share price tanking, or Matt, Ashley Madison uh, being hacked, or things like that. That's news, right? And that's what we cover. Um, and, and, and so obviously it's hard to get into the news cycle, uh, which is why I often say to startups, try and you know, get in alignment with something that's going on in the news, because that's kind of it's where the gaze of the media is at that moment. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and rather than sort of less flat line and then bang, press release, and then back to zero again, it's better to be part of the conversation that's going on. And I think also Twitter's been fabulous for journalists because um, if you notice somebody talking to you intelligently about something, then when they, they come to pitch you, their company or whatever, you're more likely to take notice, aren't you? So it, and it, it, and it, and Twitter is not an inbox in the same way that the email is, because email, you're gonna, am I going to open this and have to download a 10 megabyte PDF? I hate PDFs. Um, or, you know, am I just going to have a conversation with somebody? And that's the, that's the difference. And the thing is, we're about news. We're not about, you know, you know, just waiting for someone to email us all the time. So if I, if I start up, what is the best way for me to get your attention? How do I do that? Somebody sent me a press release uh, in a sec uh, secret wooden box once, and I had to figure out how to open it. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, original. Yeah, it was especially because it was from Russia, 
and, um, and it didn't have any name on it. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Mr. Butcher, we have been watching you. Um, <laughs> we would like to give you a present. Um, yeah, <laughs> the company doesn't exist anymore. Uh. Uh, I think it's... Um, when the sort of the doc, this this era of you know bubblish behaviour started in about two thousand and seven eight roughly, and then it of course went down again for a bit and back up. Um, uh, I remember a guy pitching on stage like a you know stage doing a demo etc. Started his pitch and uh, and then somebody ran on stage and basically swapped a custard pie in his face. Um, and that was the era of pitches where you had to stand out because there was sort of crazy stuff going on. And, um, and everyone was like, what the heck just happened, right? Um, and then I was in a pitch uh, session in Paris the other day and this um, woman founder came on with a box of eggs and just went bang like that on the ground. And I was like, what the heck? Um, and um, so I'm not encouraging you to do all of that because it all gets very samey, you know? Um, it gets a little bit samey, but, um, you know, I have this sort of phrase, which is news is a purple cow. In other words, you don't see a, see a purple yeah. cow, do you? So you, it does help to stand out in some way. Sometimes it can be a ridiculous way, and then you get their attention and you think, and, and then you can get into something a bit more substantive. Uh, or um, and then and sometimes it's sometimes it's, it's just it's just just simple conversation. I mean, it's our job, you know, to find the interesting people. It's not your job to be, you know, to have to smash stuff around. But the, 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 just the fact that the sheer number of startups now just means that there is a lot of noise. So trying to cut through that noise, you know, that's kind of why people come up with some of these crazy ideas. Now, some of, the interesting, some of the most interesting startups are the ones who never pitch the media because the media finds out about them because of buzz, because, of, uh, because they're hot, because people are talking about them. And so somebody else tells you about the startups. Yeah, some, I mean, that's, that's kind of like quite sexy for journalists when somebody else tells you, have you heard about these guys? And you go, no, what's, what's going on? You, about, yeah. you, should, you, should, you should check these guys out. So refer, referrals from people that you know, people that you trust, or in the community, or whatever, that's often like, that's, that's when you get the, the blood is up, as it were, for a story. Because that's, that's kind of more interesting to yeah. discover than it is to be pitched. Uh -huh. So discovering is, I think it's, it's something that we don't talk about enough in startups. The discovery process is much more exciting. It's much more romantic, in a way, isn't it? Than, um, there's just been sold to all the yeah. time, which happens. I know I, I accept that that's part of the industry. It's not so much pushy. It's if somebody tells you about somebody else, then uh, odds are they don't try to sell it too much. Yeah, sure. But I don't want to go back to the kind of the reverse position where in, in London or the UK or Europe where we go, uh, yes, um, anyway, <clears throat> it's a very good uh, company and uh, uh, we think it's going to be, we've got successful. We've got a few problems, got a few problems, uh, but um, yeah, we think it's going to be okay. You know, and whereas in America they go, you know, I mean, in, 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 uh, in Russia, I, I love Russia, I kept going back to Russia, the, the guy keeps going, you often come at, they, or, or some, often it's Eastern Europe, so they go, yes, we do not, um, we have invented a device, it is, uh, I shall demonstrate. 
we, we call it teleportation. <laughs> but but we, we just do not know how to market it yet. <laughs> and the, um, and, the, and the, the exact same product in, this, in the valley. It's like, imagine a world. <laughs> Transportation disrupted, right? And, and then in the middle is Britain, okay. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're, we've come up with a new thing called teleportation, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's quite useful actually. I, it means I can uh, miss the rush hour. Um, anyway, uh, would you like to write about it? On you like, yeah, of course. Um, but it's, so, it's true. Startups here are more modest, uh, not so so confident as, yeah. as in the US. But I think there's, I mean, there is there's something to be said for that confidence, yeah. um, especially when you've had a short amount of time. You've got to get you to say. We're doing this, blah blah blah, yeah. and you get it down. And that's why we always say, you know, whenever you talk to people doing, you know, pitch training and all that kind of thing, is that they, you know, you have to have your, you know, your thirty-second elevate. You're like your one-sentence pitch, uh -huh. and then your thirty-second elevator pitch, and then your two-minute no slides pitch, and then your kind of three-minute with slides pitch. And like, and you have to kind of, you know, that in the valley they are just so good at it because they rehearse it and rehearse it. And you can just ask them a question, bang, like that, and they've got the answer. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we've got to get better at. And don't worry, we're great. But we do have to get better at rehearsing how we're going to tell something very quickly because we live in this, you know, in a hubbub environment. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you want to learn uh, about this, uh, you can learn about this from Mike's blog because he has this, this thing uh, about his bio. His bio in a, in a short version, in a, in a mid, mid form, in long form, right? Yeah, it's the same bio, just with more padding, as my university presser would. Yeah. Mike, how is it in person? So, uh, you come to an event like this, do you like to be talking to people who are pitching you something, or you don't like that? Because, if, for example, we see they have this, this pitching fatigue. As long as you start, they just switch off and... Uh, they go back on the Blackberry, don't they? Yeah. Well, they used to be, they used to be they go on the back on the Blackberry. Now they're on the are you a guy like this who, when somebody starts to pitch you, you just fade off, or you still... What do you prefer? Depends how hungover I am. Um, I think the... Uh, uh, it's just, I just think it's just it's a very normal thing. It's just, you know, just be human, right? You know, if you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody, yeah. you know, you don't walk up to them and go, hello, can I tell you about my... You know, that's, you know, that does happen now and yeah. again. And you think, yeah, you don't need to do that, really. Um, and um, it's just be, just be a normal, civil person, really, not complicated. Um, and I mean, I'm in the game where, you know, I'm here to talk to people, and that's totally fine. That's part of the job. Yeah. Um, you, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and sometimes I'll, I'll do it in a more structured way where I sit down like, right, I'll, well, I'll sit down and do office hours and we'll just sort of file people in and out so I can get, get to sit down and sort of get, get a good sort of 10, 15 minute chat with somebody to kind of get, get to what they're actually doing. Okay. Um, but um, usually, I mean, Michael Arrington wrote, wrote, wrote a really good post about this um, on TechCrunch many years ago, which I'm thinking about re sort of doing, updating in a way, called greetings. It's like how to network, you know. And usually, you know, people come to me and say, hi, Mike, although they'll say, hi, Mike, and they go, and you'll go, uh-huh, yeah, and I can't remember who this person is. And, and they go, how's it going? I go, great. And, uh, and uh, you know, you always, you always have to sort of assume that a person 
maybe can't remember you or whatever. Uh, or, and you go, oh, did you, do you remember that thing we were at the other day? And I was like, oh, yeah, how are you? And that's okay. Um, but um, uh, you just have to be civil and just polite about and it. And context helps. Yeah. Before you move on to the last topic, uh, there's a question here on Slido from Gabriel. He wants to know about the oldest and youngest founder you have come across. Um, well, uh, definitely the oldest is a bit hard, um, to be honest with you. Um, not that there aren't older founders, there are, absolutely. Um, but um, usually they're serial entrepreneurs who've been in the business a long time and um, you don't, they, they don't really stick out to you. In the, in the, they don't, they're not unusual to you because you know who they are, they're experienced. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Brent's not old, for instance, but he's a serial entrepreneur. And so if he comes up with a new startup or something, yeah. I go and see him and chat about it, etc. Um, uh, admittedly, I haven't met any 100-year-old entrepreneurs just yet. Uh, but then the internet business is relatively young, right? So, um, but uh, the youngest one was probably was probably Nicola Delasio, who did Sumly. And the weird thing about Nick's story is that he started emailing every journalist on TechCrunch, like virtually daily. Oh, really? Yeah, it was hilarious. And we would, um, we have a in TechCrunch, we have a thing called uh, we used to use Yammer, and that got a bit useless. And so we started using something called Convo which is quite quick and it's quite really good for newsrooms because um, you can see what everyone's talking about and it's quite good sort of community uh -huh. stuff. And, and we were like, who the, is this, this guy real? And um, we didn't know who he was. And he's e emailing everybody and we're like, does anybody get that, that um, pitch about that summarizing app or something? Anybody get that? And I was like, oh yeah, I got that. And John got that and somebody else got that and whatever. We're like, the guy keeps emailing us every, like every day. I'm like, okay, yeah, okay. We were like, who's gonna, who's gonna draw the short straw to check out what it is? Oh, okay, we'll see what's going on. And, um, but the emails were very funny because we, we, couldn't, we, we didn't know how old he was. And I think he was about, he was quite young, wasn't he? He was about 14 or something. Um, quite young. We didn't know how old, how old he was, so it sounded very odd coming from an ad, what we thought was an adult saying, hello, could you write about me? Could you write about me? Could you write about me? <laughs> like a like sort of obsessive, you know, you know, ADHD entrepreneur. And, um, and we were going, oh, God, okay. Um, and then, um, and then I think one of the team, it wasn't me, but one of the team picked it up and just went, okay, we'll just write about it and just didn't know who he was, didn't know how old he was or anything, and just wrote about the app, just like entrepreneurs come up with an app, summarizes, we checked it, it, it works, interesting, okay, leave it, forget. The next thing we know, <laughs> um, I get this incoming saying, um, uh, what's his name, what's his, um, is it Lee Kwai, Lee Kwai Chung, the guy from, uh, I can never say his name. Um, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Hong Kong billionaire, it was a Hong Kong billionaire, okay. his name escapes me for, um, for a second, um, uh, uh, was investing $300,000 into this Sumley app, uh -huh. and it turned out he was 14-year-old Wimbledon College high school student, right? And we were like, what? <laughs> and um, right Yeah, totally. And I think that's the other thing about journalism is, is you know, Personal stories of the entrepreneurs are often interesting, um, in a, you know, in the same way that a story about a you know a twelve-year-old coming up with an amazing app is a story. Not necessarily because 
the app might be kill Yahoo or Facebook, because it probably won't, but because they're so young. So the, there's a sort of a personal element there. And in, in the same way that often when I speak to an entrepreneur and I say, how, what was, how did you come up with this? And they, it turns out like, you know, they were a refugee and they had this problem. And I was like, what the hell? That's a great story. Yeah. And that becomes a great story. There was a, we just covered a startup, a Palestinian startup, who basically got out of Palestine and launched their company in Estonia, of all places. And it's uh, a charging, uh, charging uh, startup for, for batteries. Um, uh, there's a, a Voxer is a uh, startup about Silicon Valley, which uh, is like a walkie-talkie app. You know, he's talking to it and um, sends a message. And it was very, very early. This is like quite a long time ago, actually. Oh. Now it's about five, six years old, and in, in a long time in our time. And um, and it, it turned out that lots and lots of people, businesses were starting to use it because it's so much more efficient than using actual walkie-talkies because it was like a little inbox of voice calls. Um, Voxer, and that was came up with because the entrepreneur Tom was a special forces marine in Afghanistan when his convoy was cut. This is a totally true story. Oh, wow. His convoy was uh, uh, un came under fire, and the um, suddenly uh, the uh, you know the the jeeps were taking out taken out at either end. He was one of the last guys standing, and he had to call in an airstrike, uh, airlift for the wounded and speak to his uh, commanding officers um, across the border and internally as well from um, you know, you know, nearby. And he wanted to do it, but he only had, he, each time he had to do it, he had to switch channels. And he came up with this idea many years later when he, when he discharged from, the, when he got out of the forces, um, to create this startup. And that personal story, because so that he could, you could send voice to many different places very, very simply. Um, he came up with that started as a personal need that he wanted to fulfill. So that's often, yeah, that is often, don't forget as an entrepreneur yourselves, you might come up with a great product, but also you've got a story as well, potentially, right? So that's, that's something else to talk Sorry. about. Maybe we can talk about uh, PR all night. Uh, before we finish, I'd like to speak about uh, London and the UK in the ecosystem. Uh, and we can start with the, the question we have on Slido here. Uh, the question is from a person called Anonymous. And, uh, oh, Anonymous. He wants to know... What Please don't hack me. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, what do cities like Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle need to do to establish successful startup ecosystems like London, New York or Boulder? Is that from somebody in Birmingham or Newcastle? <laughs> uh, Guys, who is the author of the question? Oh, well, no, no. Where are you? Who is the uh, hacker, Anonymous? Room. Over there. There he is. Is it? Um, oh, good for you, not Anonymous after all. What's your name? Stuart. Stuart, hi Stuart. Um, that's a very good point. Now, um, uh, I've been uh, observing the startup ecosystem in the UK, but also internationally for a while. Um, there are a couple of structural issues which you cannot get away from, right? Um, the two stru biggest structural issues are always, doesn't matter where you are, where you're from, what country you're in, is money and talent, right? Uh, we know now that talent can come from anywhere, obviously. And the money moves less. Um, and, and the money is contained in uh, institutional investors who then invest in venture capital funds who, and also angel investors and they tend to be in places where these people like to live, right? Yeah? yeah. 
And so um, that doesn't mean to say there aren't institutional investors in Manchester and Birmingham, because there are, but there are less of them. And then the v so even though there are VC funds in the north of the UK and uh, in other parts of the UK, uh, uh, the biggest cluster is here in London. So it's a structural issue that we can't get, that's probably not going to change for a good while, right? Um, therefore, I think that uh, often it's not a matter of um, having a sort of chip on your shoulder or whatever. Best entrepreneurs move around, right? And I was just in Lisbon. Now, Lisbon doesn't have any money at all. There, are, there is, as far as I can tell, there is one government fund and one VC in the whole of the city. Um, and they're not very big, right? And it's, uh, Portugal is one of the, you know, Southern European countries has had big economic problems. But what they're doing now is they're deciding to form links with Berlin, form links with London, you know, you just pop on a plane, two hours later, you're in a big, you know, you're, you're amongst big institutional investors. And, and they're using the advantages of where they are yeah. at the same time as using, saying to the people, look, we're two hours away, let's talk, right? They also connect to hubs like MIT. Now, and that, and that's not to say, yeah, and, and I think also the things that you can do as well is, um, you know, the Stanford obviously became a big cluster for obvious reasons. But there are structural issues, especially in this country and in continental Europe, around the way startups behave, which is that, um, in, when, for instance, in relation to, to universities. So um, uh, one of the problems uh, in this country is that when you come out of a university incubator, they say, right, thank you very much. We'll take 40% uh, of your intellectual property, and uh, now you can go and raise money. Right? It ain't going to happen, obviously. Because the market doesn't work like that. What happens in the US is they go, you come up with an amazing idea, Mr. Zuckerberg. You can put your thesis aside one for a moment. Good idea. Work on this. Come back to your thesis later. Um, and then there is a very long tradition in the US of, of pledging money to the institutions that gave you the leg up in the first place. So now Facebook has donated millions to Stanford. Um, and many other entrepreneurs have donated millions to Stanford, not through Stanford taking intellectual property rights in those startups, but because the entrepreneurs remember where they came from, right? And um, we have a big problem in the UK and in continental Europe about our universities operating in this manner because it doesn't give headroom for investors, and then the entrepreneur can't go and raise outside funding very easily. And, uh, and that's one of the big structures, structural issues that holds back um, the explosion of talent that we're capable of, not necessarily because of where you are, because of the institutions you have to deal with, say, for instance, if you're coming out of university. Now, that, and, then th and that's not even getting into the fact that uh, there are less VCs in Manchester or less VCs in, in Birmingham. That's, that's just a simple matter of that. But, but use the advantages that we've, we've got. And, this, and you, the advantages that we've got here uh, great infrastructure to be able to move around very easily and also to build um, networks. If we put our heads together, smashed our heads together in Europe, we would have a, a fantastic, we would have a far more, um, whether, instead of worrying about whether or not we've got a Silicon Valley, don't create Silicon Valleys, create Silicon Bridges, right? Bridges between these clusters, bridges between big conurbations like London, Berlin, Stockholm, um, these big startup hubs that are already there, 
and bring the, build those bridges because actually... You know, That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying this for a few years. Build these networks, build the bridges, don't bring the, build the valleys. Simple as that. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so y you want to kind of disrupt the just disrupt the geography. Don't wait for it to, to suddenly create your own Silicon Valley because it, it's going to take a while. Any, any, you want to be successful, don't you? You want to be successful now. Uh -huh. So be successful now. And then as things start to recycle, you know, many entrepreneurs I've known come from, from New... You know, there was... Um, AOL bought a startup in Newcastle. Those guys actually, when they are, when they done their time in AOL, went back to Newcastle, started up again, right? And that's how things going. That's how the engine gets going. Do you think recycle. the engine can be made a bit more successful by starting up communities in smaller cities? For you mentioning AOL, Steve Case is uh, doing this rise of the rest, uh, a bus tour with Sarah Grand founder and some some other guys every every year. He goes to smaller cities and he does competitions, and in every city he invest in one of them 100,000 just to help them. Uh, and these are Midwest, these are the, the not so obvious places. Yeah, um, Boulder, nobody thought, frankly, Boulder, Colorado would where, be where Techstars came yeah. out of. But um, it's a very big university town. Um, uh, it's in a place where they called the, the US, and they call, it, they call it the New West, which is a sort of um, opening up um, of, of the area. And uh, yeah, you had Brad Feld there who came up with the whole concept. And, um, and yeah, I mean, the important thing was, and Brad Feld's philosophy is to put founders first. Founders should be the ones who drive the ecosystem, yeah. not anybody else. Um, so when founders drive the ecosystem, that's when things start to happen. 